humans be trained to make accurate predictions about the future? I'm James O'Malley, and that's the question I'm asking this week on the first ever edition of James vs. Ignorance. James versus Ignorance. James versus Ignorance. Super forecasters are the name given by Phil Tetlock to the people who his research suggests are surprisingly excellent at making forecasts. The idea is that by having several thousand people answer questions about world affairs and give probabilistic answers, aggregated together they can get somewhere near the truth. The Good Judgment Project, which Tetlock runs, has been so successful that it's emerged that teams of ordinary people, albeit I presume fairly nerdy ones, have been beating even the US government's top analysts at making accurate predictions. But how exactly do they do it? To find out, I spoke to my friend Michael Storey, who is a super forecaster, and I started by asking him to tell us more about what a super forecaster is. They signed up loads and loads of regular people who were mostly... Students, I was a student, people in lots of other jobs, people kind of, you know, working what little hobby. And they said, what you want you to do is predict the future uh, and we'll ask you 100 questions a year. At the end of the year, we'll tell you how you did and we'll pay you a $250 Amazon gift certificate. So we all signed up to that. About In total, about 15,000 people signed up for that over uh, the first three or four years. And um, the super forecasters were just the people whose predictions came true to the highest degree of accuracy about the top 1%. And you're in that top 1%? Yes. So tell me about some of the sort of questions that you would tackle. What sort, what sort of topics do you go for? Um, yeah, so the, they've always been, anything, because it's a military-funded project, mm. all the questions have been things that would be of interest to the military, right? Mm. Um, so, But that's not necessarily international relations. It can be... Um, Looking at oil prices, there have been questions about diseases. So when the Ebola outbreak started, that was something people were interested in. How um, number of refugees leaving certain conflicts. So if you look on the current uh, crop of questions for the public forecasting tournament, they include yeah, how many refugees um, will the UN register fleeing Syria by a certain date? Um, and it, so there's a wide variety of questions using different types of, of thinking. So yeah, I don't want to give the impression it's just mm. international relations and kind of geopolitics, but geopolitics is informed by these other aspects of it. And so it's something, it's start using that as a kind of central starting point and then things that feed into that from elsewhere. Mm. So can, can, we, can, you, can we go through a question and can you sort of tell me how you would go about taking, looking at the question and then coming up with a forecast? Because ultimately you have to come up with like a percentage forecast, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so say I was to ask you, what are the odds that um, Assad will still be the president of Syria by June next year. How would you take that question and analyse it? Okay, so this is one that's come up every year for the last four years because he's all Assad has always seemed to be relatively precarious in his in his position. Mm. So uh, this is a thing actually. This this is what um, this is something I've had a long time experience with. In fact, I first encountered that question when I just started off um, in the project. And the way that we originally did it was not giving percentage forecasts when you were in the kind of general population of forecasters. And they had prediction markets. And so they use, because it's a very easy way to sort out who's doing well and who isn't and so on. It's a quite a simple system to learn. It's not complicated. So when we first started off with the prediction markets, um, that was a question in there. And I really profited heavily from mm. uh, my long position on a set. I backed him as a winning horse 
right from the start. And this was just like placing a bet on a bet on a horse. Yeah, yeah, it's as simple as that. Yeah. So, the, so the way it would work is that you'd be you'd play with monopoly money, and they would issue shares in an event's outcome, and you would get paid one dollar if it happened, and it would pay out no dollars if it didn't happen. And so you would buy shares in the thing that you you wanted for a price that reflected the percentage confidence that you had. So if you thought it was fifty percent likely, you'd buy your shares in that event at fifty cents on the dollar, and then when it happened, you'd get your dollar. And so Assad was Assad survival in twenty twelve was way down at like ninety percent likely that he would fail. Right, there was ten percent chance survival by the end of the year. But I really felt like he was undervalued as a potential. Um, a potential leader because people didn't think he had a very good chance you know his uh, the heir apparent to Assad was his elder brother uh, to Hafez Assad was his elder brother Bastille I think his name was and he was killed and so uh, Bashar al-Assad was was the kind of son that was never intended to be the successor mm. he had you know he was working in London in a hospital so there's all these reasons to think that he wouldn't make a good job of it the way that we looked at it and then and still looking at it now is to, is to start with um trying to find a say a comparison class right so you try it so no event is really that unique it's not nothing is that unusual mm. so look at Assad what do you know about situations like his situation so how long on average does a Middle Eastern dictator survive on average it's pretty long unless you get invaded by the Americans you if you once you're in you're probably there for the long haul right mm. These, these uh, dynastic monarchies, you're in there for life. As long as you live, that's how long you'll survive. They're also a dictator. I mean, it, we don't think of them as a dictator, but if you're king of a country, mm. you are the dictator. Um, if you put the post-Iranian revolution, there hasn't really been, um, you know, they, they tend to be quite stable, actually. So, uh, so your starting point is you're going to go on for quite a long time. A lot of them uh, uh, die in office. So, uh, so that would be your starting point. You would get that. Uh, chance of how long you think that they're going to last how far into that are you and then you'd start to look at the specific factors that affect just this case so with Assad um, you need to think well who who has deposed dictators in the past uh, are any of those actors interested in doing that again probably not so America and mm. Britain got rid of Saddam do they want to get rid of an, yet another local dictator and create you know, another problem that they've had they're a bit overstretched they're probably not going to do that and that's what's happened subsequently, that when there was a kind of um, a discussion about whether to get too involved, there's been a tremendous reluctance in, in the West to get involved in Syria, um, the, which kind of reflects their being a bit exhausted. So that's one local consideration. Then think about, well, what, what do the powerful people in the region want? Generally, most people benefit from Assad staying where he is. And then you look at the individual situation. How capable is Assad? He's very smart. I mean, he had a medical career in London. He's not an idiot. Um, he showed like good skills early on in governance. He seemed to have good reactions to things. He's and also, I mean, you know, the hereditarian side of it is not something that you can ignore. You know, his whole family are ruthless psychopaths. <laughs> so just because he's a doctor doesn't also, you know, mm. you can you can make some assumptions about how he's likely to react. I mean, his father, Hafez Assad, raised the town to the ground when they rebelled against him in the 80s. Mm. And, you know, uh, Bashar said, let's say that you're a, um, you take an environmental approach to, to, to generational transmission of values. <laughs> you would say Bashar Assad was there and witnessed that happening mm. and saw his, his old man do that. And then if you take a more hereditarian approach, you'd say 
the old man's a psycho, chances are his son's probably got the capacity to do that. Mm. So I felt, for a lot of reasons, you've got a smart psychopath who has grown up observing uh, all of you know the, his father's court. This is someone who's extremely capable. Who are the other actors? They're all quite weak. No one's particularly bothered in challenging him. He's going to survive. Who are the rebels? Who's who's supporting them? Mm. No one really. So, um, so yeah. So then, so uh, when he was down at ten percent, I bought big on Assad. I thought this guy is undervalued. He's a he's a a, a a potential grand national winner, and he's turned out to be. I mean, he was. You know, he's still there. He's doing very well. I mean, it's not you know not to say that I admire the guy. I think you know he's obviously mm. a terrible person who should hang by any. But at least someone's doing well from the Assad regime. Well, precisely, exactly. <laughs> I, I also was was quite struck because his wife did that. Did a, a whole um, PR front with um, Vogue magazine, all that mm. stuff. That was the only foot he's ever really put wrong was mm. to do that. That was a stupid thing to do. But they got his his wife to. Do you remember that? They got his wife. Yeah, to, I remember. Uh, the, yeah. To. Um, they had a whole thing about all her, what all her jewelry and stuff, and it was in in vogue. Clear, clearly, you're, you know, you're you're thinking about all this stuff. How do you boil that down into a forecast? I'm sort of saying, yeah, I think sorry, I a forgot. Ten percent or twenty percent chance that Assad's going to survive or whatever. Yeah, p- apologies, I forgot to get to that point. In the <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, so yeah, so you think about all these factors and say, mm. okay, that this is. So you're really sort of making trying to get the measure of the man mm. and say, is this person going to survive? What's the situation? And at that point, you'd start to say, well, most dictators last quite a long time. Uh, a lot of dictators have hostile press. It doesn't actually mean that much. Um, a lot of dictators commit atrocities and get away with it. So these reasons that you, that would be presented to you in the press as reasons to worry about Assad's stability are not actually generally that threatening to a regime's stability. So you'd consider all those factors. Um, you would, And basically, you would sort of start with a rough percent. So you'd say... Um, I can't remember what the actual figure is, but for a dictator, let's say, in any given year, it, an embattled dictator might have a uh, a 50% chance of being deposed if they're mm. really uh, really in trouble, right? Um, you know, the Gaddafi-type situation. But even in all those cases, there's a... Uh, the, 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 the tipping point for all of that, for Iraq, Gaddafi, and so on, was always Western involvement. Local conflicts have not toppled regime for a long time. So that means, so then you're starting to say, well, what's America want to do? So let's say on average they might have this case. In this case, it's even less likely because of that. So you might say, I'm going to up his chance of survival to 60%, 70%. Then it turned out that he's living on a Russian warship um, outside uh, in the Mediterranean. Oh, really? well, he was at the time, yeah. I, don't, I think he's moved back to mm. shore now. But at the time, he was living on a Russian ship, which actually... Um, a lot of people thought, well, this actually makes him more uh, vulnerable because at any time the Russians can pull the plug and just sail away with him on board and he can't do anything about it. Um, but, uh, but actually, you know, the, you know, the fact that he's being protected by the Russians, mm. I think, kind of, and that obviously now we've started to see that relationship get a lot stronger. Mm. But even three years ago, he was you know, living on a Russian ship there, that naval base there. I had no idea, that's insane. Yeah, so he, and he would fly into the presidential palace every mm. day because he, he felt it wasn't safe to be there at night. Yeah. So he'd spend every night on the ship. And his family were living on the Russian warship. So, uh, so all of these factors, he's supported by a strong regional power. The opposing regional powers are, uh, are weak. The international powers are weak. No one cares. He's basically going to stick around. And then once ISIS get going, then, of course, no one wants to create a vacuum that mm. ISIS built. So then you start to push it up again. So I think I eventually bought into Assad about 85%. Mm. You know, but it's not. I mean, the, the the point of the Supers program is not necessarily any one person's individual forecast. Mm. It's about a collective 
uh, weighted wisdom, right? So you you getting everyone's forecast, you're weighting it by how well people have done in the past and the, and the people's record, and so you're 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 building forecasts from there. But Jonah thought that's why he seemed to be very much undervalued, and um, you would put, you'd put a price on it. So ultimately, it's it's not really meaningful to distinguish like two percent probability. Mm. There's not a meaningful difference between sixty percent, sixty-two percent. As a person, you can't really, you know, you're, you're not really making that distinction. You might say that you are, but really, it doesn't mean mm. very much. But sixty, seventy percent, that starts to be meaningful, right? So uh, you can then you so you start say whatever percent um, uh, likely it is that someone in that situation will survive. Then give say the Americans don't care minus twenty percent. The Russians are supporting him plus another 5%. And you put a little value on each of those factors, again, trying to find comparison cases. How much did the, the Russian involvement sort of ch- like shake up the super forecasters? Did, 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 did that change everyone's forecast? Was everyone surprised? What, the air, airstrikes? The, the recent sort of active airstrikes and involvement of the Russian military. Uh, it wasn't that surprising given, yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he was mm. living on this, that Assad was living on that Russian warship and Russia's had a military base mm. that's never got smaller. So their Navy base um, has only ever grown in size mm. since then now they've got these air bases I think the scale of it is surprising but it reflects um, kind of growing confidence from Russia which is itself the product of like a 10-15 year military build up in Russia mm. so it's not that surprising that they do something I guess this is maybe a bit of a surprise but but not you know if it, it fits within the general pattern of understanding, I guess. It was a predictable event then, I guess. Or... Uh, yeah, I think the date of it is the difficult thing to get right. Mm. But um, the, the the idea that, that, I mean, I think about a year ago there was a there was a proposed deal for Assad to go and live in Moscow. Mm. So his support from Moscow has not ever really been in doubt. So the scale of it, I guess, is, is the thing that's changed. Mm. When you were growing up, did you always think you were going to be a super forecaster? That's a good one. <laughs> Yeah, uh, no, but I always thought the idea of trying to understand it, uh, understand politics was very interesting, and especially understand what countries do and think about relations between countries. So, um, so yeah, so I've got I've got some theories about this that are not necessarily supported by evidence, mm. but these are things that have occurred to me that there does seem to be some similarity in background between the the supers. So there's there's a big um, there's a big survey that's about to be done about uh, looking more into the super forecasters than has current has previously been done because prior to that you didn't have that much time for people to fill in survey questions and there were always like already about six or seven hours of survey questions a year which is quite a lot mm. but there's some more stuff being done that i've noticed having met some of the other supers at our gatherings at um that we had in california and in the uk that there seems to be some similarity between people's backgrounds. In in that there are there are a lot of kids who have grown up like like brats, like basically kids who've grown up in the adult world, right? Mm. So kids whose parents are diplomats, military, um, involved in international business, stuff like that, where you've kind of grown up in a, in an adult world, in an international world, in that kind of anarchy of states, or people who've grown up uh, actually in quite um, in sort of quite it's like socially fragile situations. Mm. So you've got this kind of people who've had a very comfortable life in terms of their material circumstances, um, but have grown up kind of being aware of, um, yeah, aware of these kind of power relations at quite a young age. And also people who are from quite sort of socially fragile backgrounds who are also have grown up being aware of power relations. And one of the things that's really interesting about um, talking to other supers is that they talk in this kind of, 
um, Game of Thrones type way. They see things in that mm. type of realist way. I don't mean realist in the full IR sense, but like just see, <clears throat> looking at things in terms of power relations and so on. And I've just really noticed that that's something that seems to attract people from these quite two different backgrounds, but neither of those are mainstream. Mm. Whereas I think people who have a more mainstream background of essentially middle-class, well-off suburban security of living in a kind of rich country and not really having to think about that, they're not used to thinking in, in that kind of power politics way of thinking about threats. And So can someone become a super forecaster or do you have to be born a super forecaster? Well, that's interesting, yeah. So it's a combination. Mm. So the idea is that you're, it's partly innate and then it's partly honed by <clears throat> training. So when we started off doing this project... You know, we were all recruited from a variety of different backgrounds. I think the only requirement that you had to have was that you had to have an undergrad degree, which is basically to weed out undergrads who wanted their $250 Amazon <laughs> certificate who would just, like, tick the boxes mm. at random, effectively. So um, you've got this big group of people. The supers tended to be people who had quite similar personality types, so high openness, high IQ, um, and a reasonably high conscientiousness and a few other things, but and then very high need for cognition, which makes sense given that you're paying people, um, you're essentially not paying them uh, amount of money that reflects the amount of time they put in. So people who who obsess about learning about stuff and don't and basically don't treat learning as work, but quite enjoy it. So if you already like learning, then you might as well learn about international relations and get paid $250 or learn about something else and mm. get paid nothing. It's not worth it for you if you are only doing it to get your Amazon gift certificate of $250 for mm. your participation. So then within that, everybody got better. So with training, everybody improved, but there were big, uh, there was a big element of personality selection to it. Okay, so let's take an intermission from my interview with Michael Storey. I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're enjoying episode one of James versus Ignorance. Uh, this is my new podcast. My plan is to basically talk to an interesting sort of person every week. The idea is that I'm fighting my own ignorance. I'm learning stuff. So every week I want to talk to someone who's interesting, has an interesting job, does an interesting thing, knows about an interesting topic, um, and sort of educate myself and hopefully you know educate everyone listening in the process as well. Um, next week I've got um, my friend Rich lined up. He's going to be talking to me about emotions, um, which should be hopefully a very emotional interview. Maybe, maybe I'll have a cry. Who knows? But we'll see how that goes. And hopefully this, this can become a regular thing. But it all depends on how it goes. So let me know what you think drop me a tweet or an email uh, with some feedback um, subscribe on soundcloud or itunes as soon as it's on itunes um, to get each episode regularly yeah and you can you can follow me on twitter i'm scythor that's p-s-y-t-h-o-r or you can head to my website at jamesomalley.co.uk to find out more about me but now um let's get back to my interview with michael story so super forecasting is i guess is sort of come of age in the last or almost sort of now because um, Phil Tetlock who's led the research he's got a book coming out about it which is like an accessible book for normal people I've just read it and understood it so that was good um, you know you're holding a big conference on super forecasting in the next few weeks um, what, what, what is where, where is it going next now now we theoretically know that uh, you know teams of super forecasters are pretty good at forecasting what is there left to research? What, what, where does the study go after this? And what's well, going to be at your conference? So I guess the, the point now is, um, it, it's when you look back at the project, before this project started, Phil had just, Phil Tetlock had just come from 
doing his previous project, which was a study of pundits, uh, news pundits, mm. uh, and had found them to be woefully bad. Right, So he, he did a 20-year study which tracked about 300 uh, popular pundits, academics, um, people in the news and so on, and looked at um, their pronouncements and asked them to make predictions in three categories, which were, will X uh, stay the same? Will it get bigger? Will it get smaller? Will the economy grow faster than expected? Less expected or stay on trend? Will there be you know mm. so on? So, uh, and you had to, you know, just make it just make a choice out of three. Over twenty years, the results of the group were no better than chance. The people <laughs> who uh, had had the most career success were the least uh, likely to be correct. Mm. So, the more listened to people were, the worse they were at making forecasts. Generally, because they made bad forecasts that were exciting rather than dull ones that were accurate. Uh, and, they, you know, they're a good shaman. Um, so the kind of prior thinking before this project was forecasting isn't really doable. Uh, these are the experts. They didn't really succeed. They had 20 years to do it. They fell victim to all these problems. It's not really doable. And, in fact, the first year of the of the um, forecasting project that eventually produced the forecasters, they weren't really expecting to find people to be any good. They were just saying, if we take lots of forecasts and try and aggregate them, what could we find that's better? So the the discovery that there were people who were good and didn't need to be messed about with algorithms and their forecast did come true was kind of a surprise to start with. Mm. And at that point, they then said, OK, we want to expand the project, try and recruit more people, and from those people, recruit more super forecasters, and we'll now make the super forecasters the focus of the project. So that discovery in itself that there are people that can do it, that is new. It might not seem that new but the consensus prior to that was it can't really be done mm. and the biggest study was done by Phil and the conclusion was that it can't really be done or that there's not evidence of it mm. so that's the biggest discovery once you've now got that then you've got to decide well what are you going to do with that information and how are you going to structure things and there's lots of things that come out of the project that aren't just some people can forecast but who they are uh, what their personality uh, characteristics tend to be and also uh, what environments help people be accurate? So there are lots of examples of, you know, if you the forecasts need to be anonymous. You need to make sure that people are not uh, sort of held to be accountable for m making their predictions in a in a in a kind of uh, a way that is threatening to anybody. They need to be only be accountable to the accuracy of their predictions. So there's certain environmental things that we can change for everybody. So those things are quite interesting. But I think the the biggest discovery is that it is possible. Mm. And so if you're in any type of organisation <clears throat> where you want to try and predict the future and you want to try and understand how can I do it better, you can either say change your recruitment and try and incorporate more forecasters, which is um, one of the things that came out of the, the study is that you can tell a little bit about, about whether people are good at forecasting by looking at their psychometrics. Um, but also that there are probably people who are really good that you already have in your organization but you don't know that they're any good and you haven't got a good system to harvest that information so it's partly kind of systematic discovery and partly a matter of psychometrics mm. and so what you do from there well what we're doing is trying to build on that and trying to do more um research into the supers to try to find out what what how the supers are doing it because there's still a substantial amount of what supers are doing that it that hasn't really been very well understood. So you can get supers to write down their process. And in fact, we spent about a year where they get all of us to say, when you make a forecast, write down why you're making it, please. And we'll mm. have a little note. That obviously suffers from some problems because if you're writing down, um, uh, you know, you're, not, you're going to write down things that are more 
sort of acceptable. It's very unlikely that you write down gut feeling. Yeah, yeah. Right? But obviously that plays a bit of a role, but I don't think anybody wrote that down. Right. So is, it, are, is it hard to articulate why you why you come to some some conclusions? Or yeah, it can be. Yeah, and I I'll, I mean, I've thought about this quite a lot because um, there's a few examples where there were a lot of a lot of players in a game, and I watched press conferences of the of the people involved in it, mm. and I just liked certain people in there and thought that you know that, I don't know if you're if you're a gambler, but sometimes you go to the, if you go to a horse race or something mm. and you see the horses walk around the paddock. You just like you like one, <laughs> right? And and you think, yeah, this this horse looks like a fast horse, but you couldn't mm. really articulate and say, oh well, if you measure the length of its hind leg yeah, and yeah, so on, yeah. so on. But you, there's something about it gives but you that impression. Is that is that because you know if you go to a horse race, you know a bit about horse racing, so you're sort of subconsciously knowing I know what a good horse looks like, or is that just? Or is that an illusion? Are you just thinking, you know, it's got a funny name, so I like that horse or something? Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. So so I think there's an idea that you're maybe processing information that you're not fully aware of. Mm. And certainly with, um, I mean, I'll give you an example of a particular question that we forecast again. I just think of my big profits. Mm. My other big profit was on um, uh, President Kabila of the Congo, mm. who last Christmas he had this big um, contretemps with the, with the UN, and he just seemed incredibly bright. And he seemed like the kind of guy that would quite successfully outwit the other players mm. in, in, in that particular conflict. So it's a bit difficult to write down and say, he seems like the cleverest person, so I'm going to speculate strongly that he will succeed and what he, mm. he will get what he wants and the other people won't get what they want because he's brighter than them, right? But it's hard to articulate mm. by saying, well, I watched a press conference and you seem really with it. Yeah, yeah. But, but that actually contributed quite a lot to why I, why I forecast that. Mm. There were other reasons, and there were, there were other reasons of, like, that, you know, what local regional powers wanted, what the UN wanted, what relative status the UN had. Because the UN have got this um, thing now called the Force Intervention Brigade, which is allowed to shoot people. It's like the first UN uh, outfit that can mm. shoot first. That's their oh, big okay. thing because UN troops are allowed to return fire, yeah. I think, but not shoot anybody first. The FIB can shoot people, and they were threatening to basically invade a bit of the Congo to attack these um, Rwandan rebels who were hiding out there. And the president didn't, of Congo didn't want them to do that, and so he came up with like these ingenious schemes to prevent this from happening, like calling peace conferences and not telling anybody that the peace, you know, like he called a peace, a peace conference in Luanda and like, you know, unilaterally, but pretended that it was a kind of international <laughs> thing. And then the UN put pressure on the, uh, the local government to cancel the peace conference. Mm. And he eventually, what he came up with, now this is the thing, you could not have predicted what he would do, but I, I forecast that he would do something really clever. That's, mm. what, I, that's what I thought. <laughs> and so what he ended up doing was um, that he had some generals in his army who were on this... Uh, uh, UN list of uh, you know they're like wanted by the ICC mm. and uh, so what he did was the UN said if you don't attack these rebels we will effectively invade you and attack them right mm. uh, but to, they're not allowed to do that so normally they have to have some cover that they're doing it as a co- they're cooperating with the local authorities so what he did is he sent one of his armies uh, up to where these rebels were and then just had the uh, appointed to that those armies uh, all the people that had been indicted for war crimes 
And so the UN is not allowed to come, to have any official collaboration <laughs> with anyone who's done war crimes. That's genius. And so they couldn't do anything because their legal fig leaf is we're cooperating with local forces. Mm. The UN cannot be seen cooperating with someone that's wanted for war crimes. And so he was able to kind of prevent this conflict that he didn't want from happening and keep the UN out. Now, no one could have said that's how he's going to do it. I watched that. That's yeah. the politics equivalent of a David Beckham hat trick. That's incredible, right? <laughs> but... <laughs> But at the same time, that's the point. Yeah. If you were betting on a football match, you wouldn't bet on the specific tactics, but you would look at the players and say, mm. this person is incredibly gifted. They will do something that's really good, you know? And so there are things like that where you can't necessarily articulate exactly why you think this person is going to escape the jam that they're in or why they're going to succeed. But you look at their record and look mm. at the kind of person that they are and say, okay, this person has been around a long time. You don't get to, to be in charge of Congo unless you're very smart and you're thinking a lot of moves ahead of the other people that want to be president of Congo. <laughs> That's quite a, you know, there's a lot mm. of people who want that. If you've got it, there's probably a reason why you've got it and they haven't. And you're, you're very with it. And so, whereas that might not be true for, say, the post of, you know, UN person down there. And in fact, the UN guy who was trying to outmaneuver uh, President Kabila and did not succeed was previously like the UN guy who'd been involved in some. Uh, crisis in Iraq and I think he'd got shipped off there as a kind of you know <laughs> as that you didn't do very well so go off and deal with this and uh, and so you know, he was really not the most competent person that they could have put in charge so it's quite so mm-hmm. that in that sense you're not forecasting the specifics but the tactics but you can have some say in the outcome you can say okay this person seems very with it I think they're going to do alright give us a plug of your conference what, where, where is the conference when is it and what's going to be what's going to be discussed okay so the conference is on Saturday the 24th of October it's in London you can buy tickets at Supercon like Super's Super, convention yeah. skid, right? Uh, supercon.eventbrite.co.uk um, it's uh, it's going to be the first conference where basically most of the uh, research team who set up and ran the Good Judge Project and kept that all going are going to be there plus all the super forecasters who are in this region are all going to be there as well. So we're going to have talks about application to defence. We've got former MOD analysts, people from business, and then basically you can learn about the kind of the, the, the specifics of the forecasting techniques that have come out of the four-year project, and then what we're going to do next, which is the other bit of it. Superb. So I've got two more questions for you. First right of all is, um, is what I'm calling a format point. So this is a thing I'm hoping to ask every person every got week. You. Yeah. So... Um, what do you think the world is most ignorant about? What do we need to learn more about to be a better world? Given, given your unique experiences and knowledge and so on, what one thing would you think we need to be better at or do more of? Oh, that's tricky. Oh, you've stumped me a bit here, James. I'll Ooh, tell you okay. why. Because, because I think, because I think my, my view is that a better informed world is a better world. Mm. But now I'm not sure if that is true or maybe we're happier in ignorance <laughs> like, to some degree. Because, uh, yeah, I, I think, um, I don't know, I'm going to have to think about it. Because, mm. uh, you know, a lot of people with this project, because obviously it's, it's funded from all like defence, the CIA mm. stumped up some of the money for it. You know, it's steeped in all that military industrial complex that people have so many objections to. And my view on it is, well, it's okay to do, you know, this is actually a pretty good project. If you're a pacifist, if you don't agree with conflicts and so on, making it easier to predict what's going to happen in the future really sort of benefits everybody mm. unless you unless China has that technology and I was going to say what, what's to stop Beijing you know get, getting 10,000 people like they did for you know the Olympic ceremony but saying rather than dance you're all going to read these books and then start forecasting what's to, and like train yourselves to be super forecasters is that dangerous for us if China get really good at forecasting yeah of course it is uh, it's you know uh, it's back to that power politics thing I mean I, you know, I don't want to get too far into my own <laughs> 
uh, view, but um, it's necessary in a world, you know, it's necessary in the world for the, you know, the sort of the, the blocks that you're aligned with to have access to good information. Uh, and if everybody else does and you don't, it does put you a disadvantage. My feeling is it, that, that actually that a lot of the ways to think of thinking about predicting the future, it's a kind of Bayesian mentality, right? Mm. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, yeah, it's finding your best guess for looking at comparison glasses and kind of updating that guess in the in the in the way that uh, in the direction of, of the evidence that you come across and that's quite a nice way of thinking about things and that's quite a disciplined way to think about your life and think about decisions that you're making in your life so I think that would be quite a good thing generally but I'm not sure that encouraging everybody to think in a kind of probabilistic way is is actually would make for a happier world so i don't know <laughs> okay final question um this is episode one of james versus ignorance would you forecast how, what would you, how would you forecast the odds of me getting to episode 10 uh based on my knowledge of you and knowing that you're like a very conscientious person and your personality i would i would say if you if you were offering a quid for a, a completed 10th episode and i would i would buy that for at least 95p Michael Story, thank you very much. And that's just about it for episode one of James versus Ignorance. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed making it. It's been about eighteen months since I last made a podcast, so getting back into the swing of things um, is pretty good. Pretty good fun. I hope I'm not too rusty. Um, you can follow me on Twitter if you'd like. I'm Scythor, that's P-S-Y-T-H-O-R. And I, of course, will be tweeting links uh, to both Michael's story, he's MW Story on Twitter, and his Excellent Sound Conference, which is in a few weeks' time. So do head along to that as well. Uh, and do tune in next time. Will it be next week? Will it be in two weeks' time? I don't know yet. I guess we'll find out where I'll be talking to um, my friend Rich about emotions. So, yeah, tune in then. Um, but for now, thanks for listening. Um, it's been nice doing this again. Ignorance, James versus ignorance, James versus ignorance, James versus ignorance.